we truly be lost in thought? What does the love of learning look like? And how can it be corrupted? Hello, this is Anya Leonard, founder and director of Classical Wisdom. You're listening to Classical Wisdom Speaks, a podcast dedicated to bringing ancient wisdom to modern minds. This week's episode is with Dr. Zena Hitz, tutor at St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland, and winner of the Height Prize in Humanities at the Dallas Institute. Zena is also the author of Lost in Thought, The Hidden Pleasures of an Intellectual Life. We discuss how we can find leisure, why it's important, and the fantastic story behind MC Hammer and Zena's friendship. But before we begin, a quick thank you to our Classical Wisdom Society members who make this podcast possible. If you would like to become a society member and help support the classics, please go to classicalwisdom.com and click start here. Now, on to useless contemplation. And I do really want to speak about your excellent book, Lost in Thought, The Hidden Pleasures of Intellectual Life, which has done extremely well and is always very exciting for philosophy lovers to find books becoming popular. Um, but I think, I guess, the best way to begin is how can someone be lost in thought? Well, uh, it's an image being lost in thought. It comes from uh, Socrates in Plato's Symposium is depicted getting all dressed up, which is unusual for him, getting clean and wearing something clean. <laughs> all dressed up for a for a dinner party at, at Agathon like you know so it's this kind of celebrity the equivalent of a celebrity dinner party in ancient Athens and he's on his way to the dinner party and he stops in the doorway and thinks about something and he's just staring into space for an indefinite period of time and the person who he's brought with him who is in fact not invited to the party goes has to go in without him um, and is embarrassed, and then they don't quite know where Socrates has gone, and then they figure out that he's been he's lost in thought at the doorway. So it's uh, uh, being lost in thought is it's an image of uh, something I think is central to intellectual life or 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 learning for its own sake, which is a sense of inwardness. That is, you're 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 pulled away from the world in a certain way, um, and you are. Uh, you you have formed, um, if you're lucky or thanks to education, a kind of space for yourself where you can retreat, a space of retreat where you can reflect, think, contemplate, wonder. And it's that that I think is really fundamental to, um, to learning. That's the thing that um, really makes it worthwhile for human beings, makes it a part of their happiness um, and a source of their uh, human beings' dignity and, and worth. Um, and so uh, it, it also means because being lost in thought is a bit of an inner condition, uh, a, uh, something that might not be visible to outsiders. So Socrates looks weird. He stops on the porch and just stares into space. So he's kind of evidently doing something different. But you might be lost in thought while you were laying bricks or um, feeding the cows or um, driving. A, I mean, not too lost in thought, hopefully driving the taxi. Or I... You're, the core of you might be elsewhere. And um, so that also means that 
intellectual life, uh, learning for its own sake, is something found in places that we wouldn't expect. It's 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 hidden from sight in a certain way, and that's also important to to the way that I think about it. Uh, I love that imagery of Socrates, and I had no idea that the concept of loss and thought went back to him. Um, it, it is funny that you said taxi driver, though, because I'm actually a horrible driver, and part of the reason is that I get lost in thought, and I'll be driving along, and I'm literally be like, oh, wait, I got to pay attention to the road. Don't worry, everyone, I do not drive at all anymore. I only live in places where I don't drive because I have a tendency to do this, so everyone's safe. I'm not making the roads more dangerous than it needs to be. Um, yeah, it's interesting, this concept of it being like internalized uh, and, and that somebody can be sort of lost and separate. I, I guess it, when I was reading sort of through your book and stuff, it, it was this kind of idea that, that when you're in the action, you don't really notice time. And um, I thought that was really interesting that, um, that, that we, when we're kind of lost in a thought or we're really engaged in an activity, time becomes a very different experience to us. Um, do you think that's a good way for people to figure out what they should be contemplating if, if they can get lost in it? Um, I think it can be. There's a, there is a distinction. Uh, it goes back to Aristotle that I find useful because, you know, we say that learning is for its own sake. This is the kind of learning I'm interested in that I defend in the book. And that's traditionally called a form of leisure. So it's, it's not work, it's what work is for the sake of. It's some kind of activity that your life culminates in. And um, what can be a bit confusing is that what Aristotle calls recreation or play or vacation time is not necessarily leisure in this sense. It, it could just be that you're, you're resting, you're relaxing in order to go back to work. Um, and you can also get lost in time, it seems to me, in those circumstances. Like you're at the beach and the waves just go one to the other and it's just, you you lose track of what happens next. Um, and I think it's important for leisure and for intellectual life to be a bit grander than just entertainment or vacation or relaxation. It has to feel like your life really culminates in it. So one test I like, which is connected to time and your question about time is, um, you know, what would happen if an asteroid hit tomorrow? You know, would, uh, would what you were doing be made pointless if an asteroid hit tomorrow? Um, if you're really learning for its own sake, I think the answer is no. You know, even if you were in the middle of a proof and maybe you didn't quite finish the proof, you were still actively being what you were supposed to be being. You were in contact with some kind of reality and that, that mattered in and of itself. That's why you lose track of time, because um, in a way, in that moment, that's all there is. It's the best thing there is. You don't need to wait for anything else. Um, and uh, so I think, I don't know, whenever I think about time, I get confused. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but I think that it does help. The temporal ways of thinking about time and how we experience time do help to identify the things that matter most to us. Um, and it is it is difficult to identify those things. Uh, it's it's work to identify what we really care about most, what we want to organize our life around, what we what we um, whether in fact due to our invisible choices, our lives are organized that way or not. So so any any kind of tool of discernment you can find is a, is useful for that reason. I think. 
Yeah, I think the asteroid one, the only problem with that is that that might validate spending all of your time building an underground bunker or something. <laughs> <laughs> like, no. Okay, this is great music time. Be a prepper. This is, this is totally valid. <laughs> no, I think you have to imagine the asteroid is totally obliterating. There's no okay, escape. Okay, okay, it's okay. Going to, it's going to knock the Earth out of its orbit. It's, there's no, I mean, yeah, even Mars will become uninhabitable thanks to the impact it'll have on the solar system. So, so I, yeah. I, I think you have to, you have to qualify it that way, but thank you for reminding <laughs> me that there's, there's lots of ways of thinking about the impending asteroid. Um, yeah, yeah, I guess it, you know, it's interesting too, because, um, you know, I was talking to a friend just the other day about this and she was saying that uh, she felt like her work wasn't meaningful enough that, um, you know, that she should be doing more with her like intellectual endeavors and such. And, and so I, I referenced your book. I was like, oh, you know, maybe this might be an excellent book for you to read. <laughs> and, I, and I was thinking out loud and I said, oh, maybe like this kind of idea of being lost in thought. And she said, uh, you know, so wait, obviously just sitting on the couch, drinking a beer and watching television will not count. <laughs> no, no, that doesn't count. So I, I, to, to your point that it's going to be a bit more meaningful, um, but I kind of felt that just the process of thinking about what is meaningful, the process of trying to decide and sort that out, that is meaningful in and of itself. I think that's right. And it's, um, it's a bit of the paradox that you uh, struggle with, I think, if you, if you do this type of study or this type of, type of work that I do, is that you're on the one hand, it's really true that the search matters more than the uh, goal. Um, on the other hand, <laughs> what are you searching for yeah. if, there's, if there's no goal? So you need a goal in order to make the search meaningful, but in some way, even embarking on the search, setting out in the search, doing the kind of examination that you need to to begin is already, you're somehow already doing it. Uh, and it's it's, it's mind bending to think that way, but I think it's also just accurate to, to the way things are. Yeah, I said, she was like, oh, I, I, I feel like I'm having a midlife crisis. And I was like, if you're thinking about these things, then that's not a crisis. Then it's, that's a good path of exploration. You don't want to go on the treadmill of life and be like in your last days and just be like, was I what I was doing meaningful? No, you, you should be doing that along the way. You know, that's so helpful, actually, because I think that we... Um, we pathologize uh, getting off track, like the midlife crisis, or frankly, a breakdown. Now, what's a breakdown? Um, often, a breakdown is uh, a way that you that you finally realize that the thing you were doing wasn't working. <laughs> it might be the only way you realize it. So it's like a reset button. It's in fact a huge uh, gift. It's hugely important. And a midlife crisis is, yes, exactly. It's, um, it's the discernment that maybe you should have done earlier, but it's better to do it now than later. Um, you know, it's, this is what you need to be doing. We need to be um, reaching out to, to what's really important. And it, we, it's so easy. One of the things I think about is how easy it is to kind of live your life on autopilot, you know, to live it off of other people's expectations of you, basically, and and the expectations that are easiest to set for yourself. And there's so much more to life than that. And it, it's um, most, I think, most are all the things that are really fulfilling are are in that space that are where we get past that when we're not we're not operating on other people's expectations anymore. 
Yeah, and you need those sometimes those jarring experiences, um, you know, trauma or tragedy or, you know, just realizations or, I mean, near death or any of these kind of things. Sometimes they're, they're like the shortcut version <laughs> to realizing what's important. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I, um, you know, I get uh, some people think of the book as glamorizing suffering in a certain way because I talk a lot about suffering and how important it is for for uh, meaningful life and for intellectual life um, but it's it's really not glamorizing it's just the the we suffering is usually bad and but it is for the one thing inevitable and for another thing it's often the only thing that gets you off of the track of of uh, you know the easy comfort autopilot um, what's easiest to do. And it's really not healthy to live like that. So if it's, if it's only suffering, that's going to get you out of it, only trauma that's going to get you out of it, then, you know, that's one, one good thing about trauma, even if it's not somehow intrinsically in and of itself worth pursuing, you don't want to pursue trauma, No. <laughs> but, but if you, but if it comes to you as it almost always does, then, then that's a good way of using it. To use so it to, you're not yeah. advocating bungee jumping in <laughs> No, although intellectual bungee jumping, bungee jumping with your mind, I'm in favor of. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, okay, so you were talking before about like the love of learning. And I, I mean, you know, I've got a young daughter. I see, it's so much easier, I guess, to see the love of learning in children because you just, they had the questions of constant questions. And I mean, maybe for us adults, we see it sometimes in when you go down wormholes, that's like, you know, you start looking up something random like cargo cults and before, you know, at five years, 10 minutes later, you've learned everything about some random island in Vanuatu worshiping Prince Charles or whatever, you know, but how does like sort of authentic love of learning look like? How does that sort of take shape for, for people these days? Well, I think it's important to realize that it doesn't, it's not usually made from scratch. So there are some people who, uh, I feel like I've met them. I'm not one of them myself, but I feel like I've met people who seem to have been born into the world with a certain kind of authentic innocence and they just do things for their own sake. They're not plugged into to, um, status competitions and uh, other other ways of being plugged into uh, the social world in its lowest, most competitive sense. But I definitely am like that. And most people I know are. And uh, so I think it's important to realize that you hardly ever start out learning for its own sake. You, you start out learning for the sake of something else. You're, you're impressing your parents, you're impressing your friends, you're impressing your teachers, you're doing what you're supposed to do. You're, um, you know, if you're like me, you know, you're bad at sports, uh, you're unlucky in love. Okay, so you've got to do something, you know, you, you, so, you, so, you, so you aim for good grades or um, advancement in, in academic things. Um, so uh, I think uh, what happens, as I understand it, is the following. I think that we as human beings are naturally, uh, naturally drawn to real learning to to contact with reality there's something in us some deep desires that really that want to think about things and want to understand whether that's um, a desire to understand the natural world uh, or a desire to really understand other people or to get to the bottom of the meaning of life 
um, it's there's something in us that really wants that, but it's it's not immediately accessible. The fact that it's natural doesn't mean that it's that it's sort of right automatic at the surface. You, it has to be cultivated. So what I th I think often happens is you you start out learning for these other reasons, and then something breaks open. You suddenly are you suddenly lose track of your original interest, and you're lost in what you're doing. So here's an example from the other day, which I think is, I think it is a good analogy. We can see, um, I was, uh, weeding a big chunk of my backyard, which, which I've actually never weeded before. So I've lived here for six years. This has been like a bed of weeds for six years <laughs> to weed as you've never weeded before. I was, so I was, you know, so I'm like, get and I'm, I'm trying to pull stuff out by the root. Right. But I'm looking as I'm weeding, I'm looking at the plants. And I'm like, Oh, isn't that interesting? How do the roots of this work? You know, do, is this one root? Is this one plant or is this a network of plants and how does a network work? And I'm, you know, and I'm identifying the roots of one plant with another plant. And, um, so it, almost this is a practical thing uh weeding i think it's a means to an end but somehow i got lost in the middle of it thinking about what these plants were and and trying to figure out how they worked for its own sake not for any practical reason so i think that can happen you know you're studying for a math test and and suddenly you realize you know you start enjoy really enjoying the math um and that's how that's how i think it happens and, um, you know, you recognize it in yourself when you, when you are, when you start to do things that, um, are not obviously for not any other purpose than just learning. So you're, 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 you're doing work that you don't have to do. You're thinking about something you don't have to think about, or you're thinking about something in which there's no profit for you to think about. Nothing doesn't get you anywhere. That's part of the test of it. Um, do you think that's ever just a form of procrastination? It is. <laughs> it is. Yeah, I should be doing this. That's when. That's when I know. Uh, <laughs> I think I can speak for myself, and I think many academics have had this experience where um, there's the thing you're supposed to be working on, okay, uh, and then you really don't want to do it because you have to. And then there's the project that you develop to distract yourself from the thing you're supposed to be doing. And the project that you're supposed to be, that you're distracting yourself with is often more interesting, more valuable, more worthwhile, and turns out better in the end than the thing that you were initially setting out to do. So it can, it can look and feel like procrastination, but it is, um, it, it, it really can be more authentic than the thing that you <laughs> were trying to avoid doing. Uh, which isn't to say that procrastination is good. It's not to say that we don't have duties, things that we really need to do no matter what. Um, but uh, we, we shouldn't disregard the, the things that happen at the corners, at the margins, at the outside, um, because those, are, those often end up being more valuable than we thought to begin with. Yeah, I like the kind of the ability to laterally think. And it's something I think is sometimes problematic with sort of mainstream academia or higher education that and, and this is something you know obviously interview and talk to a lot of different professors and they're sort of forced to focus on such a niche point of whatever they're studying that it becomes you know boring or they're, they're not allowed to get outside perspectives and a lot of times I'll have a professor doing a webinar on something that's completely unrelated to their expertise 
actually, but that they just really enjoy. And, and I keep saying, you know, that's great, actually, because if you study things from a different angle, that sort of intersectionality of ideas, you usually get fresh perspectives. You usually get to see it in a whole other light. Like, you know, I think of like Steve Jobs and calligraphy, like sometimes the best things happen when you integrate completely unseemingly unrelated things. I think that one of the reasons why this must be true is that uh, we, we're often pursuing our duties or our sense of our duties out of a kind of fear you know, again, it's the autopilot. It's the it's what's comfortable. It's it's moving forward. It's fulfilling other people's expectations, and um, you know, again, that's part of life. It's not like you can avoid it entirely. But you you that's that's not all there is. You need there to be other things, and if those come crowding at the margins in ways that you don't expect, like welcome them when they come. Um, if you can't if you can't always you can't always find a more systematic way to pursue them. So. Um, so you also say in your book that the love of learning can get corrupted, um, which is kind of heartbreaking to think because you want to think, okay, once you find that love of learning, then this is like such a great pure goal in and of itself. But even that can kind of take the wrong turn. So how, how does that happen? And where does it go? And how can we avoid it? Well, um, I don't know how avoidable it, it, it is. I mean, it helps a lot. <laughs> It helps a lot. Uh, the kinds of institutions that there are, I think, can do a lot to um, make corruption easier or less easy. No, no, there's no hard and fast set of rules how to avoid corruption. If there were, uh, the world would be a different place. I think <laughs> it would be a lot better, but it isn't. So um, what happens is I think we, again, we're, I, the way I think about things, if it isn't already obvious, I, human beings are complicated. They have more than one type of motivation. There's the type of motivation that, that wants comfort, that wants to please others, that wants, um, or th that's kind of uh, a sort of flatline set of desires. Then there's uh, aspirations to compete, um, to be better um, in some way that really uh, is superficial. So, you know, you're, you're, you're climbing a relative ladder of status, like relative to someone else, you're higher. And that's a very, uh, it's always a very tempting prospect. It's very, for one thing, it's kind of easy to do that in your own head. So I was thinking about this, you know, why is there so much uh, contempt on social media? Why is everyone putting everyone else down all the time? Well, they're, they're just, they're competing. They're putting themselves up in the easiest way possible. It's always easy to see what's wrong with other people. So you kind of hammer on that. And then that somehow makes you feel as if you yourself don't have any flaws or don't have that particular flaw. So social competition is is uh, a really big deal. It's a big part of us. It's, it's a very serious motivator. So love of comfort, um, competition, all of those things can mean um, and, and institutional in incentives. So for instance, in, in research academia, which is in the world today, the, the highest prestige way of, of being an academic, um, what matters is uh, how much you publish. Um, matters to some extent what you publish, whether people <laughs> read it. Um, but the way that that value, which of course does matter, like it, you do want work, academic work to matter. That is, you want it to be read, you want it to be 
uh, understood, learned from. Uh, you want it to be influential in that way because it's good and because you've discovered something, you've had an insight. But the way that that's interpreted by most institutions is how many how many publications do you got? So, and that means that you your writing becomes it can become not even an act of communication because there's more stuff published than anyone can read yeah. in a given field. So um, it it's uh, you're you're doing work which looks like learning for its own sake and may involve some learning for its own sake. But what you're really doing is just cranking uh, this this machinery that works uh, for its own sake in the wrong way. That is, it works yeah. um, machinery that works for its own place own sake is like bureaucracy for its own sake. It's like we we file papers for the sake of filing paper. We check boxes for the sake of checking having all the boxes checked. And that's a very easy trap to fall into in any kind of any kind of profession. Um, that's organized around an activity that really matters. Um, so that's in a way why it can be liberating to have a career in something which is not inherently meaningful because then you don't pretend. Whereas if you're a doctor, teacher, you know, something where you know that what, what you're doing really matters, but yet it's being measured in these ways that are totally disconnected from like the health or well-being that you're trying to produce for others. Uh, you, um, you know, you, you can lose track of, of the meaning of your work. And that's, that's very, very demoralizing. Academics right now are very, very demoralized. That's my impression. They are not happy. Uh, and the, the successful ones, the high prestige ones are not happy. And of course the, the low prestige ones, the ones that are struggling to find work, they're also not happy. I think that's partly because the whole, the whole set of institutions has gotten detached from the things that, that actually really matter about it, that really justify it. Yeah, it's, it is amazing that you think that if, if that kind of force of just making things into bureaucracy and, and cogs in a wheel and the sort of meaninglessness, if that's coming at the highest levels of education, of intellectual pursuits, like how is that, what, what hope does other fields have in a way? Like these should be the, the intellectuals, right? They're the ones who should be fighting against this exact trend. Uh, and it seems like the system is set up that they can't even fight against it. Well, they can fight against it. They can and they do. So um, that's something that also I'm accused of is being a bit too harsh on contemporary academia. And so, and I, I think I am sort of for rhetorical reasons, because I think there is something rotten at the core of the thing. But as a lot of people know who are in any profession that's really in decline like academia is or like medicine is or like all of our professions are um, that you you can carve out space for yourself to do what matters so there's teachers everywhere who make their classrooms into places where learning really happens they're doing it in opposition to the institutional incentives they're doing it often without any um, thanks without any gratitude without any reward but they do do it they, 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 they make their classrooms like that. They establish little programs that are worth doing. So that's happening everywhere. Um, that's always a possibility, but um, it's, it, it's true that I think we do have higher expectations of intellectuals. Maybe we shouldn't, uh, <laughs> maybe, because intellectuals are fragile people. They're, they're often very competitive. They often, 
um, have withdrawn from the world, so to speak, out of uh, some trauma or some failing. And that, that too affects how, how we function, even as thinkers. You know, it's, it, you know, you're saying before, like this kind of, it's like the keeping up with the Joneses seems to be such a motivator for people um, into one way or the other. And, you know, it, it's something that I love about, I'm, I'm a perennial expat. Like I've always been an expat. I was a third culture kid growing up. And um, I find, I don't know, this is just, if anybody ever wants to get out of the feeling of keeping up with the Joneses, it's great when you're a foreigner. Because you're, you don't have to follow any of the expectations. You don't have to, you don't have to follow the pressure. And my, uh, my husband's Australian and we go back to Australia and like within a short time period, I see the impact of the, the pressures of how you're supposed to act and feel and do. And I'm like, oh, I, I need to be jogging and oh, I gotta do something with my hair. And like, and because I, I'm so out of that normally, the contrast is, it's blatant to me. Like I feel it, I see it. I like, I can almost visually see the like everyone, you need to look and act and be this way. Uh, and then I come back to Argentina and I'm like, whatever. <laughs> I just do whatever I want. I'm just a weird foreigner. You know, like I don't have to conform to anybody's expectations and it's so liberating. Um, I don't think I could go back to, I mean, maybe I, maybe that's like an immature, like I should be like figuring out the ways inside myself to deal with this rather than just live in a foreign country. But it's so much easier when you're a foreigner. You know, it's so interesting that you say that because I think a lot about, a lot of my work is kind of openly nostalgic for parts of the 20th century when I think the human, what we call the humanities and learning for its own sake really flourished and had institutions. It was never, I don't think, culturally dominant exactly, but it it flourished much more than it does now. And I there's there's two sets of immigrants who I think really made that happen in the U.S. Um, there's the 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 immigrants from Europe in the early 20th century who, you know, were people who had come from landed peasantry. I mean, they were very, often didn't know how to read. Um, and they come to this new country and they're hungry to be something different. And and they're freed from that set of expectations in the old world. And so they, they, they founded all these little grassroots intellectual organizations um, from which something like St. John, the program at St. John's or other great books programs came from. Or I think about um, all the refugees after World War II from Europe who really populated uh, universities in, in the US and in the UK and who conducted themselves with this kind of you know, freedom, the sense of freedom. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, the, the place where I teach and where you, where you studied St. John's, it was very shaped by those refugees who um, you know, I think back in Europe, they would have been, you know, high professor such and such, uh, but that was all lost to them. And uh, so, but they were perfectly confident that they could run a college the way they thought was best because they were free of these kinds of expectations. So actually, I'm now, now that I think about it, I think that probably uh, switching countries is... Uh, a really good way to be to get this kind of freedom and this set, this freedom from expectations and uh, a sense of new possibilities for yourself, a way to reimagine yourself and your life. Uh, I hadn't thought of it that before. So thank you for thanks for helping me out. It's the immigrants <laughs> that have done it. Uh, that's why everything's gone wrong. We're not yeah. getting enough 
Yeah, the reset button. You gotta have the reset button. <laughs> Even just on a very superficial level, sometimes I just change my entire wardrobe. Just you know, just like whole new right. look. I'll go blonde for a while. Yeah, you know? <laughs> I'll look at an outfit. I'll be like, is this to yacht or not to yacht? That's my style today, or whatever. <laughs> Reinvention. That's great. Um, anyway, I, I want to take a, a slightly different turn for a moment um, because uh, you know you're bringing up the classics and, and the humanities, and I think. Right now, there seems to be a, a little bit of a push against the classics and, and the humanities. And I've read, and I've, I mean, I've been told by people before that one of the reasons that they accuse like ancient history uh, of being maybe not worthy of our attention in a way is that the, the space that was given for people like Aristotle to contemplate was, was born on the back of slaves. Because they had slavery, they had this leisure time for intellectual pursuits. And so this only occurred because there was slavery. Um, and you kind of say, even right in your intro, like this isn't the case, that you don't need vast estates to be able to, to, to contemplate. Um, maybe we could sort of delve into kind of how how contemplation isn't in correlation to wealth. Right. So it's uh, it's in a way a tricky question, and I I don't want to um, uh, diminish the force of some of those arguments or deny some obvious truths, which is that you know a lot of the tradition is aristocratic. It is from uh, a few a few people who had the money and the land and the leisure to do these kinds of things. And it was, strictly speaking, on the backs of the laborers in a lot of ways. So I think Aristotle's work is uh, written on the backs of laborers. Uh, on the other hand, those laborers are all dead. Um, there's That's, in a way, I, I believe in being very uh, pragmatic about this kind of thing. So I, I'm I'm against slavery and I'm against exploitation if it's not technical slavery. Um, but I think it's it's chasing after ghosts is a waste of time. It's been done. Uh, it can't be undone. It's like not taking medicine that was um, discovered by vivisection. Vivisection's wrong. If we're doing it now, we should stop. But the medicine's there, take the medicine. And I think that's especially true for part of what I think is so incredible when I think about it is Plato and Aristotle and a lot of these aristocratic writers, they never imagined mass literacy. They never imagined that someone like you or me would, uh, actually, I don't know, maybe maybe you're from aristocratic stock. I don't know. Um, but uh, they never they thought- They were part that of those World War II immigrants that- <laughs> <laughs> So the- um, uh, they never imagined that ordinary people would read, much less study philosophy, would have that capacity to do it, which meant that they wrote for, they wrote for aristocrats, but once you can read and once you study, they are talking to you as an equal. So I think that's why great books have been such an engine for egalitarianism and why they've their success or their failing has gone along with egalitarian principles. So the 20th century was a great age for egalitarianism, whatever was wrong with it. And it's partly, I think, because you could pick up these books that were written by people who lived in incredible privilege, 
and they would talk to you as if you were an equal. And you could engage with them as an equal. You can have a conversation with these books. No one's stopping you. Um, so I, I think that that's the liberating power of the books is that you are, um, you're engaging with works that are truly, I mean, you have to believe that some books are better than others, you know, which they are, anyone with experience. <laughs> a lot of books knows that. Um, and that there are books which are really an education in themselves. And once they're available to you, you can get them. And I think one, one thing that I think they didn't understand in antiquity is that um, there, there are, there, you can, manual labor is in fact uh, freeing of the mind in a certain way. So, okay, if you're, there are certain modes of life which are so hectic, they involve so much hard work that you can't actually think straight. Okay. Now I think that's a bad thing. I think we should try to arrange our communities such that no one has to work like that. Um, and for all I know, maybe in ancient Greece, maybe that was how farming had to be done. I doubt it, but maybe it was. But we know now that you can um, do some manual labor and have your mind free to think, especially if you have just even a bit of time to do that in. And there are so many examples of people who worked regular jobs and uh, studied something for fun in their spare time and really came to understand something and to learn something and sometimes to have even groundbreaking insights into that thing. So I'm very persuaded um, that whatever the conditions under which intellectual life was pursued in the past, and maybe we're benefiting from those conditions in some way, uh, but they're not necessary anymore. It's much more widely available and there's no reason, there's no fruitful reason to reject books um, because of the circumstances under which they were written. It doesn't make any sense to me. Well, and also I think um, people, you know, might point to Aristotle or Plato, but not all the classical writers were alike and several of them were slaves. I mean, especially when you like look at the Stoics and stuff, you have people who suffered, who had lost everything, who'd been captured. Um, you know, you have like female writers, you have you know, Sappho, people like that. Like, uh, and she was considered equal to Homer. So it's not like unheard of, minuscule. You know, you had a, a wide range of authors that, that, that they, I think, it's a common misconception these days to make this huge time period that covered a huge span of the known world at the time and make it monolithic because it wasn't. It's was much more diverse and, and nuanced. Um, but uh, I do want to ask, you know, when you talk about that, there are, there are people today who in types of work that um, don't allow leisure uh, and I think one of your examples is, you know, the Amazon workers of the world, if they're, you know, working 12 hour days. Um, it is interesting though, I've, I've read about um, uh, revenge procrastination, I think in China, have you read about this? I just read, saw this, read this the other day. Apparently uh, Chinese workers, like a lot of young kids who would go in and they, they have the schedule, it's something like six days a week, they work from nine to nine. So it's, it's the 699 schedule or something like that. It's a huge amount of work. And by the time they get home, the commute, and they eat, and they shower and all that kind of stuff. It's straight to bed. But uh, they, 
they do revenge procrastination. They'll stay up, they'll have discussions with their friends. They'll just forego sleep in order to have that leisure time because it's clearly so important to our sense of humanity. And they will literally revenge procrastinate. I mean, I don't know why it's vengeance against their sleep schedules or their employers. <laughs> That's so interesting. Yeah, I wonder part of me wonder part of me thinks that's wonderful and inspiring and part and um part of me thinks how sustainable is that you know like okay they can do that when they're young well suppose they have kids they can't do that anymore um then again so um so i i i really i do really think that i'm happy with the consequence um of my views that you need a certain amount of leisure time to have a flourishing human life. And that, that's one of the reasons why um, employers have an obligation to, to provide that. And, and if there's competition issues, then governments have to step in and help them resolve that. Uh, we, we just need leisure time in order to flourish. Uh, so I, um, but that's, that's not to deny you know, the astonishing ingenuity that people come up with. I mean, one of the things I talk about in the book, and I, I love, love, love these stories, is about prisoners, right? I mean, they are not just by accident. You know, Amazon warehouse workers are, you know, they're deliberately treated this way to maximize their productivity, right? Um, so it's 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 a profit-driven uh, thing. But political prisoners in, say, the Soviet Union, um, it was a deliberate attempt to dehumanize and destroy their their inner sense, uh, and um, many people in those circumstances uh, were inwardly defiant, uh, or outwardly they you know there are these stories from uh, Romania of prisoners teaching each other languages or knocking um, poetry and Morse code through the walls. Uh, so I think um, a bit of defiance is is uh is good and healthy and and worth worth cultivating in yourself should you ever be in a position position like that because that it can be the only way that you really survive as a human being is by you know saying like i am going to be a human being regardless of what you are trying to make me into yeah i think there was a story from the holocaust or concentration camp where they're was a group of women who um one of them had secretly you know like on pain of death. No, I think it was in the ghetto, but she had a book and it was gone to the wind. I remember that. And she would be reading it at night. And the next day she would read it. She would retell the story to the women as they had to do their work or their jobs. And even though it was on pain of death, if she'd got found reading this book at night, by being able to tell that story and enjoy it herself, she was able to sort of give meaning during a very difficult time. Yeah, and you think, um, especially circumstances like that, um, you know, there's death and there's death, right? I mean, there's death because they catch you and kill you, and there's death because of despair because you've you've lost any sense of your humanity because of your conditions. And um, you know, I I think a lot of these people made that somehow were able to make that choice. I don't I don't know. We know none of us know what we would do. Um, but it'd be nice to know that you would make that choice, that you would choose to um, live defiantly rather than to uh, risk dying of despair, dying of uh, hopelessness um, one way or another. 
So um, I, 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 we're kind of running out of time, so I kind of want to finish up with a, a few different ideas, but I have so many questions I want to ask you. So uh, I try to figure out which ones I'm going to, uh, to end with. Um, but I guess one, one thing I'm still kind of interested in is how people can find their leisure time, because I think you're right that it's so important. And, you know, when we think of extreme situations like being in ghettos, you know, that, that sort of doesn't relate, hopefully, to most of the people who are listening to this. Um, but, but I think people do waste a lot of their potential leisure time on, you know, their cell phones, on, you know, the little bits and bobs and notifications and badges. And is there a way people can sort of find the, I feel like people have more access to leisure time than they realize. And people always feel like they're running out of time. How can they sort of grasp that leisure time? Like where can they find it and like really make use of it? Yeah, that's a great question. And, um, you know, I, I myself have always struggled. I don't have a formula, you know, the, you know, I, every now and then I try one. So I, last thing I tried was bullet journal, you know, it was going to be, you I know, totally this, did that too. <laughs> and I, was like, was, I watched so many videos on how to do it. And then I was like, it's like a lot of effort. <laughs> and I had, I had friends who are just true believers. They were like, this, this was life-changing for me. So I was like, well, okay, I'll try it. And of course, it, you know, it just didn't work for me. Um, so I, I don't think there's a, so to speak, silver bullet, again, that's going to, to make it easier. But I, I do think that uh, technology is itself really important to avoid. So in a way, even though, suppose that what you really want to do is to read and study seriously. Even if you tear yourself away from the screen to go for a walk or weed the garden or um, or just sit and stare at the wall, which is underrated. <laughs> <laughs> underrated, in my opinion. Um, anything I'm just thinking of the can... lyrics of Captain Kangaroo right now. Flowers <laughs> <laughs> hey. on the wall that don't bother me at all. <laughs> well, except he's watching Captain Kangaroo. Uh, I mean, yeah, smoking, um... but smoking cigarettes is good leisure. I mean, it's bad for your health, but it's a good leisure activity, good for contemplation. So anything that can get you away from the screens is going to help. And trying to find ways to minimize uh, screen time. So I don't know. I um, I don't have a smartphone. I have a flip phone. Um, all of my tech is on a laptop, and I just moved because I I, I use Twitter for social for my book. Really, I use social media for um, promoting <laughs> that the idea that everyone should get off of social media <laughs> and read some books. Um, I have that on a separate device than my laptop so I can do work without having to get sucked into it. So there's various tactics and sometimes they break down as we all know. Um, but, but continuing to try to find ways to, to make sure that you're using your technology, um, as they say, intentionally as a tool, as a means to an end, you're on your computer because you've got to do work. You're watching TV because you need to relax. And you're going to do it for a fixed period of time and then you're going to stop. Um, you know, you're on your phone to make a call or you're on your phone to communicate something. That's the goal. And you're going to get distracted. You're going to make mistakes. But just to, to try to um, game your life, that is to set up the incentives in such a way that it's it's just a bit more difficult to get lost in it. 
I think that's honestly the the biggest thing. And once you're accustomed to having, it's like any addiction, right? I mean, there's a terrible feeling when you first stop. You you feel empty and horrible, and you and all you want to do is go back to your screens. But just push past that into that empty space, and then all of a sudden you find that you want to read books, that you want to cook something elaborate, you want to spend time with family members um, in a way that's serious. So it's, I think, honestly, technology is is ninety percent of the game these days. Like it's it's just huge. Um, yeah, I think it, it, I think it's always good too to for people to remember that it's okay to be bored. Like it used to be, you know, like you're waiting at the bus stop and you know, that there's an uncomfortable moment when you're bored and then your brain sort of switches into another gear and you start daydreaming, you're thinking about stuff or you start formulating ideas, whatever you're on, you're, you're commuting. This happens like all the time, but nowadays you're bored and that uncomfortable second of being bored, you just automatically take out your phone and you start looking at it and then you just get distracted, but they don't realize, like, you don't realize you have to get, you have to get past that, that little bit of uncomfortableness. Right. And that's where your like brain opens up in a way. Yeah, I think that's right. I think, uh, yeah, I think phone handling, like leaving behind the phone, keeping the phone in a drawer, <laughs> whatever you can do, getting a dumb phone just for emergency purposes, whatever you can do. But I agree that those little empty spaces that actually you just come across in life, if you don't have the technology to fill them, it's 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 that's really crucial, I think, for just getting comfortable with that sense of emptiness. And something that happens um, in any serious kind of learning, it's never a nonstop gratification. It's it's always. You, you know, you're really excited about something and then you work for a while and then you lose track of what you're interested in and then it's really difficult and then you don't know what you're doing anymore and then you're filled with despair yes. and you just have to get through it. You will figure it out. You will solve the problem. You will complete the project um, and it takes experience. I think part of what scares me about the current situation is that people don't have the experience of getting past those initial obstacles and finding what's on the other side the more experience you have of that, the more th- that, that, that really sets up a motivation for you to break through it when you can. So that's why you shouldn't get too, too discouraged about failure. Um, because as long as you um, know and remember what it's like to get past those entry barriers, the more often you do it, the better you're, the better off you are, because you, you have the motivation, you have the desire to break out. Um, and that's, then you just give it time for that to, to take precedence, which in my experience, it happens regularly. I mean, not always, but not always when you'd want, but it happens once. I, I feel very grateful that I grew up before this technology stuff got really bad because um, I had that experience of getting past those barriers often enough that I can go, that I, I know it's there. Yeah. Even I if it's easy to get distracted, I know it's there. I know how worthwhile it is. I know it's better. And that event, that sometimes can pull me out. Yeah, I do, I do worry for the younger generations that, I mean, I'm sure our parents and their parents' parents worried about whatever the new gadget was and, you know, well, video games, I guess we had when we were kids or there was various things. Um, but, you know, you mentioned social media and I just, I, I do want to finish up with another one. I'm, 
speaking of younger people, I'm often doing events with another woman who's, who's a bit younger than me. And I knew her age really the first time when she asked me, she's like, oh, so have you ever heard of MC Hammer? And I was like, are you kidding me? Like, yeah. Like, and I'm like, oh my God, you're really a lot younger than me. Okay, no. <laughs> lovely, lovely, very smart. But I was like, oh my God, I feel really old now that it, that's super obvious to me. Um, but MC Hammer is become um, kind of a philosopher icon of late in, in conjunction with herself. And it's such a cool story, I think, for people who don't know this, who aren't really in the this sort of new realm of Clubhouse, might not know this, uh, this great, like, happenings that's happening with regards to philosophical movements, which is great. So... Um, Maybe you could just tell us very quickly what happened there, because I, I, when I tell other people, they're like, what? Really? This is amazing. <laughs> so I can tell you what happened. Uh, and it, it's, it's, don't get me wrong. It's, it's basically the most exciting thing that's ever happened to me. But the, it's still, in kind, not that different from something that can happen on social media, as bad as it is. It has allowed me to find out about and connect with all kinds of people who um, care about the same kinds of things that I do. And learning for its own sake has become sufficiently marginalized that it can be really hard to find people in your local community who care about it um, or who care about it in exactly the way that you do. So it, it really is an opportunity. So I was on Twitter promoting the book, um, connected with you know my, my colleagues in academic philosophy, you know my friends and the, the people I used to know, the people I used to be students with and my colleagues. Um, and then I discovered at some point, I don't know how, that MC Hammer was posting a lot of stuff about philosophy and science. And that was interesting to me because here was someone a bit unexpected. And it was clear that he was, he was especially interested in questions about life and consciousness and the origins of life. He was reading scientific papers, both popular and research papers, and he was connecting with philosophers. So I started to follow him pretty closely, and then it's actually has a has a bit of a St. John's College flavor. The the moment of connection. So I, um, I was on Twitter too late one evening. I was out in in California. Over Going the against the very rules you're telling us. <laughs> I know. I was breaking the rules. Um, well, fortunately, there's a God, so He helps you out. So I was on too late. I should have been going to bed. I was on Twitter, and all of a sudden, I see in my feed this video of. Planaria, which is a type of flatworm, which has amazing properties of regeneration. So you can cut planaria, it's like earthworms to the millionth degree. So you, you can cut them into up to 700 pieces and each of those pieces will become a new flatworm. And they'll, um, they'll develop, each of the pieces will develop organs and they do this relatively quickly. So we, we actually study these at St. John's in our freshman laboratory sequence um, as part of, as a set of questions about, you know, what is a, what is a, a living being? What makes it a whole? Um, how does it organize its parts? Uh, a lot of very profound philosophical questions connected to that. So he, anyway, here this this video appears. It's totally unlabeled. It's just sent from MC Hammer, but I know exactly what it is because I've taught freshman lab more than once. So I, I got very excited and I you know retweet you know it's Planaria. Look everybody, it's Planaria. And then I guess he that had some impact on him, so he started listening to my book. Um, and it resonated with him. I think partly, I think because of his interest in philosophy and science and because he's an unconventional um, philosopher and scientist, that is, he's 
known as an entertainer. And if you know a bit more about him, you know he's also an entrepreneur. And if you know a bit more about him, you also know that he's a, a believer, a person of faith. But you wouldn't have known necessarily he was a philosopher or someone who really cared about science. Uh, so um, I think he, that also connected with the book. Also, there's a there's a Bay Area connection. He's very Bay Area proud, and that's where I'm from, and that's where the beginning of the book takes place. So uh, anyway, he 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 wanted to have a conversation. So and um, he he now has this series on Clubhouse of uh, where he he reads talks to authors. Um, so I was uh, one of that one of part of that series, and we uh, talked for uh, four hours. <laughs> and what for me was the middle of the night. Um, I mean, he and I didn't talk for four hours, but he. He, he and his, the people that were helping him run it were, they wanted to answer every question in the room. And, you know, hundreds of people sometimes turn up for these things on Clubhouse. Uh, so anyway, it was fabulous. Um, and I'm very happy to have made the connection. And the one thing I, I, I want to somehow um, pin him down some time and get him to talk about how he became, how he developed his intellectual interests, his intellectual talents and what they mean to him. Uh, he was a little bit shy for whatever reason about that. Um, but uh, anyway, it's a pleasure to meet people like this. Um, they're, it just, no one's who you think they are. Uh, people are full of surprises and it's it's wonderful. And you can, even through the horrors of social media, you can you can find this out. So that's the story of me and me and MC Hammer and our uh, our connection and our, I, I hope, continued friendship. We'll see what, what we... I bet you know. didn't imagine when you were growing up, like in, like living in the 90s, like at the time being like, there's going to be one day, like when I'm going to see the line, <laughs> me and MC Hammer. And that's just going to be like, I'm talking about you all the time. Like, yeah, yeah, my friend, MC Hammer. No, no, I, I never would have thought that. And I, I never would have thought that it would have all been because of regenerating flatworms. I mean, that's pretty weird when you think about it. Like what would, you know, two things that neither of us are expert in. Anyway, uh, yeah, it's a wonderful, anyway, wonderful thing. So delighted. Thank you for listening to Classical Wisdom Speaks, a podcast dedicated to bringing ancient wisdom to modern minds. You can find more information about Zena's book, Lost in Thought, the Hidden Pleasures of an Intellectual Life at xenahits.net.